When you get down there, you find the mine. You get lots of private property, and well, in its most finished form, you get the suburban guy who chased my seven-year-old off of his property. Get off my lawn! You get the little king, the little tyrant, instead of the big one. Hello, everybody. It is another, it's time again for, why are we, what, what, what's rabbit? Why are we talking about rabbits? Why are we talking about rabbits? That's this podcast. We do heavy things lightly. So if you look carefully on the interwebs, there's lots of stuff jumping around and reproducing. Sometimes they're really interesting, but nobody goes deep on this stuff. This show tries to, you know, like Neo in the Matrix, like get unplugged for a second, look at the stuff that we, you know, live in our daily life, and then, I don't know, use philosophy, history, deeply immersive experiences that we have in our work overseas to try to figure out, you know, like how the hell did we get here? Yeah. So let's go beyond the rhetorical rabbits today, and let's try to figure out on Watar why people yell this phrase. Dude, get off my lawn. On water. Okay, Andrew. You ready? You ready for some cranky neighbor talk? What's a cranky neighbor sound? Get off my lawn, dude. So this thing whole started, I started to think about lawns and how I only see lawns when I'm in America or in Europe, but mostly America, mostly America got to be a new world thing. Guess what? Of course it's a new world thing. It's a super new world thing. It may be the most new world thing that ever happened. And it takes me back to when my kid Nico was six years old, maybe seven, just only a little bit taller than my great Dane, Stella. Stella, rest in peace. R.I.P. Stella. And she used to walk her. And I'm not kidding. This happened more than once. This dude two doors down would like, like yell, hey kid, get off my lawn. He would sort of like put his face in the window and yell it. Or he'd come outside sometimes. Now, we got to admit, there's a good chance my six-year-old was on his lawn. That's possible. Somehow it didn't sit right. How many of you out there, raise your hands. Andrew, raise your hand. How many of you have been yelled at to get off of someone's lawn? I have. Yeah. I think by my own dad, that happened. So what is this? This get off my lawn thing. Well, basically it can be summarized in an argument between Aristotle and Plato. Yeah, that's right. Both very old world people. Well, living in the old world, but with a lot of ideas that were borrowed into the enlightenment, into the new world. But in terms of the enlightenment, really two people sort of had this nuanced view on really one idea about private property that really allows people to even call something their lawn. And these two philosophers are John Locke and Adam Smith. And basically, John Locke is going to say something like, and this is, you know, late 1600s, early 1700s, he's going to say something like, property is a natural right that God sort of not had not bestowed solely on the monarchy. So up until his time, the monarchy, well, they were like, yeah, that's my land. God gave it to me. And John Locke's saying, no, everybody has a natural right given by God to own their own property. 
And this came from the labor theory of property, which was the notion that property is a natural result of improving it. It's weird. It's a law concept. When you live on it, you improve it, and therefore it becomes yours. Hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, through mercantilism and in the modern industrial age, this private property notion gets enshrined in places like the music, Andrew? The American Revolution. Which Adam Smith had a little hand in in some ways, right? With his books. So Adam Smith writing in the 1770s, well, he has an idea of the right of property too, but he doesn't really call it a natural right. Natural rights for him were confined to things like life and liberty, right? There was definitely an import, import, and it was of importance that private property was understood, but he said private property was bestowed by the civil government. A government actually gave you that right, which is not an American constitution kind of concept. But Adam Smith said, no, the state of property must always vary with the form of government because the government is itself the most important and responsable when it comes to terra firma. The government itself, the collection of leaders appointed by their people, by their followers, they must take charge of land so that it can be used properly. And one way to most properly use it for Adam Smith was to give it to individuals. But this argument had already been well had 2,000 years earlier by Aristotle and Plato. And I'll give you a, a, a hint, is Aristotle is what John Locke and Adam Smith, that's the guy they liked. Because here's what Plato said, and you'll know right away, that that's not the American Western way this Plato guy had in mind. Plato basically was fixated on states or polis politics being a two-caste system, rulers or guardians, and then the community. And for Plato, the rulers, the guardians, the wise ones, they could not own land. It was very important that they own no property. No houses, no land, no nothing. Because, as he said, to own land is to project your ego. And so, for Plato, if the leaders, especially, but really no one should own land, if the leaders started to acquire land like the senators did in the Greco-Roman world, not long thereafter, basically they would tear the cities, quote, into pieces by differing about mine and thine. Yeah. Plato saw property and virtue as incompatible. If virtue was to go up, then property owned by an individual had to come down. If virtue was to come down, then it was probably being driven down by private ownership of land. Mm hmm. Weird. Or is it? I think of perhaps a monastery in the Orthodox tradition or even in the Buddhist tradition. Hmm, who owns that land? And then I think about the people who actually have to administer that land and how they basically get caught up in a lot of stuff called not prayer. Hmm. Anyway, Aristotle's not going for this. Aristotle writing somewhat 
shortly after Plato, well, he says, no, 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 no. What's the music there, Andrew? No, 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 no. Aristotle says no. Basically, individuals should own land for one reason, because it instills virtue. Hmm. So if you're an American out there right now, you're going, yeah, that's right. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm, I'm talking about, some Aristotle. Aristotle said four things are going to happen if you let people own their own land. Efficiency, unity, justice, and virtue. I mean, and generosity. Efficiency, unity, justice, and generosity. Efficiency. What's he say? He says, look, nobody wants to live on land that's overgrown. Like, you don't want spiders in your house. Nobody likes the idea of, oh, look at my kitchen. And look at the overgrown weeds that have come through and where the, uh, oh, oh, look, there's bugs. The more likely you are to own your own land and build your own house, the more likely you are to not neglect it. Efficiency. This is a virtue for Aristotle. Unity. So he flips this. This is very interesting. I think in the modern mind, especially the postmodern mind, this will seem weird. But Aristotle says, look, it's just a fact. If you just observe communities that hold land in and property in, in common, and they share its management, they're always fighting. They're always fighting. And he says they're always fighting much more than those who hold property separately. So by holding property separately, you actually create a chance for union, for unity. He says people should own property because it allows for justice. And what he means is, is, If you have a piece of land and, I don't know, you do something on it, like, how about this? How about this? You realize you live in a neighborhood filled with baseball fans. By the way, opening day. And the Mets are good. Yeah, meet the Mets. Greet the Mets. Andrew, why can't we put that song on? I know you're going to be like, it's a copyright law. But the Mets would like it. Meet the Mets. Greet the Mets. Come on out and see the Mets. Peanuts. Pop. All right. Anyway, if you live in a community and you have some land, and on that land you set up a little baseball card shop, I don't know. You get a little, I don't know, you get a little card table and you bring it out and you sell really cool baseball cards. Well, guess what? You're using that land efficiently, right? And you're doing something else. You're being rewarded. And the rewards of your selling of those baseball cards on your private land, well, guess what? That's justice. You deserve it. And if you don't use your land well, well, then you don't get stuff. And guess what that is? Justice. Hmm. Aristotle. The fourth reason why should you own land privately for Aristotle? Because it instills generosity. Again, virtue. For Aristotle, the whole point of a human being is to learn virtue. One of the virtues is generosity. And how can you give something away if you don't own it? Right? To do generous things is to have the stuff with which to generate generosity. Yeah. As he says, right, the the work of generosity is in the use of one's own possession. Plato's like, yeah, go ahead. Try that out, buddy. Try that out and see how that goes. When some people start to acquire so much more 
that the other people come for them. And they have many times in history. So, Plato and Aristotle, both old world people, but really, guys, that's the entire argument. Property has always been, always been, in every culture, old and new, pre-enlightenment and post-enlightenment, has always been understood as potentially private. This isn't like before, like, I'm from the old world and I don't know what land is. Land seems confusing. I just chase dinosaurs. Not like that. Medieval people weren't walking around like, you know, mouth breathing all the time. They knew stuff. They knew a lot of stuff. They knew that land could become private, but it just didn't very often. Yeah. So for in many ways, as, as you get, the way to think of it is, as you get closer and closer to the platonic big picture, the one, you know, the ideals and forms of Plato, when you get closer and closer to that, you get closer and closer to like the titular monarchs, the medieval popes, the pre-enlightenment world of thou, thine, God. And if you get closer and closer to abolishing private property in those worlds, you get supposedly closer and closer to God, right? When you get down in the weeds with Aristotle, down on the earth, on the practical ground, living in simple scientific terms, just like the way American founding fathers, the way they loved it, this practical living, when you get down there, you find the mine. You get lots of private property. And well, in its most finished form, you get the suburban guy who chased my seven-year-old off of his property. Get off my lawn. You get the little king, the little tyrant instead of the big one. Right? Hmm. But how do things work in Africa? So how did it actually look to be more than this platonic ideal? Because that's what it is, I'm telling you. Well, Africa, uh, what's the sound for zero lawns? Andrew? Zero lawns. Zero. I know you're going to be like, no, some people got lawns. Some white people got lawns. But there's no lawns. Okay, I lived in a village with no running water, no electricity. I'm telling you, this operated like it would have in the 1300s, even further back. And I loved it. It was difficult, but I loved it. And I'm telling you, no lawns. But what do you see? You see compounds. Yeah. A compound. Here's how they look. Five, maybe six huts. It really depends. The husband has one. The man has one. And if he has three wives, like my friend Dowda did, then he's got three more huts. Then he's got a kitchen hut. Then he's got probably a kind of a storage hut. And then he's probably got like, I don't know, some kind of granary perhaps. And that's six or seven huts. And then there's one more, the Niegen, the bathroom. And then they're all surrounded by a wall, a mud wall, that's probably no higher than my waist. You can see into the compound, right? And guess what? You could also walk into the compound. There was no door. And when you walked in the compound, you could also walk right into the hut because I didn't really see a door. You might see a curtain hanging there. They made me a door because I was like that guy. I was like the Western guy. I was like, I was like, dudes, make me a door. But most people just said it was open or it just had a little curtain hanging there. And guess what? You could roll right into that hut too. 
You could roll right into any hut you wanted to as long as you did one of these. Like, Ikakeniwa, how are you? The clap sort of said, put your panties on. But then they'd roll right into your compound. What's that about? Well, what that was about is, is there is a commonality there. It's very hard to say what is owned by whom, right? Basically, the compound was part of the village, and the village proper was part of the chief's kingdom, which was part of, wow, it was all owned kind of together. You know who else has compounds? Have you ever thought about this? Cults. Yeah, cults. You know, like Waco. Or like the Rajnishi. I highly recommend documentary on Netflix about the Rajnishi. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wild country. Yeah, the Koreshans. They had compounds. And guess what? You do, too. And if you do, well, I don't know if you do, but if you do, you probably live in a cult. But here's what I'm here to tell you. That's probably not a bad thing. In fact, it's an unavoidable thing. Think about any place where people live in common, like an Orthodox monastery, if you're an Orthodox Christian out there, or a Buddhist monastery. These are compounds. It's not really a debate. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying a monastic community being associated with a cult is bad. Hearing cult as bad just means the cult you are in isn't obvious to you. Yeah, but the people in other cults, like the Koreshans, well, somehow they are very obvious to you. And the reason they're obvious to you is because their cult holds as its highest value something different than your cult. And I know right now you're going, um, uh, dude, I don't live in a cult. Yes, you do. Because every human that's ever lived lives in a cult. Because every human that's ever lived is surrounded by imbibes and relates to culture. Christians live out their lives, or they should anyway, in the cult of Christ. The question is not really if you're in a cult. The question is, which one are you in? <laughs> and what is the highest, most valued ideal of your cult? And my guess is this. If your cult loves them like a God creator, especially a creator of all things, if that's part of your cult, and they really go like all in on this, I mean, they worship God like crazy, and they hold that God and that value up higher than any others, well, then they will create a compound mm -hmm, of some sort. That group of people who hold that God up high will create something like a combination, a compound of little dwellings put together into one. And they'll do this as a type of equality of interest, a way of diminishing the individual and raising up the group, raising up the God. Think of a monastery. But if your cult goes all in on the individual, I mean, if the cult you're in is like really in on the individual, let's say that the, indivi the individual in your cult can do stuff like assign themselves their own gender. 
or they can legally choose their own time of death. You know, like in Holland or Oregon. You know, if you can act like you're your very own God, well, then that cult will, without question, not build compounds. It's inconceivable. I mean, they can't conceive the blueprint. It's outside of their scope of vision because it eludes them. Because such an architecture of being is hidden by the dominant and overwhelming shadow cast by the highest value. By the individual. By the architecture of individualism. That shadow overwhelms all others. And so why would I build a compound? I mean, this is me. I don't want to live in a compound, and yet I've been invited to them by Orthodox people who want to own one big place together. And I'm like, hey, hey, I like the same kitchen? This is the exact same kitchen? I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying I can't. I'm still trying to free myself of that cult that I was raised in. Or am I? Huh. Right? How far in you want to go? I mean, if any of you are entertaining monastic life or you have a son or daughter entertaining it, then you know what I'm talking about. They're about to go away from the house and they're going to join a big house. They're going to the big house. Yeah. Yeah, the societies, the ones that worship themselves will not build compounds, but they will have front yards. And you will need to get off Of the ones not called yours. (laughs) It has to be this way. It's yard physics. But really, it's spiritual physics. It's the physics of the old and new worlds made manifest, in this case, the new world. My kid was getting yelled at by a man who was worshipping his yard himself. It's nuts. The way in which you organize your cult will inevitably and without exception dictate, form up, create the very nature of your day-to-day. I I mean, really, think of a kid, your kid, or think of you, and you're given a massive bucket of Play-Doh and a playground-sized canvas. A playground, in fact, you're given as well, on which to build using your massive bucket of play The values you hold will become manifest in the putty you mold. No way around it. But the putty you mold will literally reveal the things you hold most dear. It can't be any other way. The thing you hold up highest will become manifest in the very things you do on the lowest, most simple, most material level. And those things, the down low things, will point you back up to the high things. This is what people don't realize. The high things aren't in control. The high things need the low things. And the low things need the high things. This is not a hierarchy as much as it is as a union, a yin and a yang. Right? And that crazy synergy does something like create reality for you. The synergy of the up invest itself in the low and the low becomes the right reflection of the high this is the reality or better put this is meaning right there in your heart now the heart is also interesting where do you find the heart in the middle 
between the low things, the bowels, the deliciousness, the stuff that moves you, and the head, where all the ideas are, where all the platonic ideals and forms are. They're there. They're there. Right? Right in your heart is where you find reality. Where the heavenly things are united with the earthly thing. And that's why I think we have lawns. <laughs> that's why uh, old white guys yell at people to get off of them. Their highest ideal, the notion of them as in charge, is being manifest in the manicured lawn. Like I said, just a little worship moment. They're telling you about their cult. Just in the same way as my pal Bakari from Sindala, the village in Mali, is telling me all about his cult and his highest values. When he comes rolling into my hut slash bedroom, as I wrestle to put on my underpanties so that he's not, you know, privy to my junk. I got to present myself properly. Why is he in my room? Is, is, isn't he a guest? Shouldn't guests stay out? Oh, shouldn't they stay off my lawn? <laughs> hey, Bakri, get off my lawn, man. But is he can't get off my lawn. He's my brother. He's my compound cultist friend. Why would I? That's not your lawn. It's our lawn. Yeah. I'm telling you. These things play out. So anyway, the next time you... Uh, I got a kid who rolls through. What time is it right now? It's a Monday in South Carolina. And I got a kid who's, and his buddy, they come rolling through, right through my backyard on their way home after school. I can, I can set a clock by it. But you know what I have to tell you? I kind of like it. I almost want to go out and like give them cookies. Then I'd be a creeper. That's a different podcast. But I'd like to want to say, hey, dudes, what's up? Much love to you. They just come rolling right through. <sighs> Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Who loves you, man? Well, Shani's Gagimajos, that means to you the victory, often said at the KP table in Georgia. That's a place you can actually come to now. You should get on a plane. And here's what I'm going to say. If you come to our restaurant and you don't live in North Carolina or South Carolina, I would like to offer you right now your first free gratuite bottle of Georgian wine. And we'll give you the, the Gorelli is my favorite. Come. Taste good wine, good food. Toast with us. Sing with us. We were just singing on Saturday. We sang many years and we, we also sang Vechnaya Pomyat from my mother. And I'm just telling you all this because, well, when you come and you buy our Khajapuri and our Georgian food and you drink our wine and our liquor, then what you do is you support our field workers and their projects and the people they aim to serve. So, come join us. Greenville, South Carolina at a restaurant called Capy. You can find it at kpyrestaurant.org. Until then, Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos, and our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. Just told you all about that. Our goal is just to serve people the best we can wherever they desire some sort of vision, right, for happiness. We go, we help, we serve. Two years at a time, like Peace Corps. Share this with a friend. Share Watar. Hit us up. Come on. Become a donor. 
Much love to you guys. There's a good crew of people out there. I've gotten some good emails recently. Just magnificent crew. Nakfam dis, hasta luego, kambufo. Au revoir. Peace out.